0: the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Salzburg Summit and the fallout for Brexit, plus what to look out for at the Labour Party conference next week. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor George Parker, columnists Philip Stevens and Robert Shrimsley, plus Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining, and if you liked this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. The Salzburg Summit was supposed to be a breakthrough moment for Theresa May, where the EU offered a stepping stone towards sealing a withdrawal deal in October or possibly November. But for the Prime Minister, it didn't quite go to plan. She was tersely rebuked by Donald Tusk, President of the European Council, who rejected her Chequers proposals. And in response, Mrs May stood outside Downing Street to say she will not be bullied and the two off-the-shelf options for Brexit simply would not work. And so, once again, the talks are at an impasse. George Parkett, you've um, been jetting around the world. You're back in London after being at the summit. Give us your summary on what happened and was it unexpected and where we all are.
2: Well, it was unexpected for Theresa May, that's for sure. She'd stayed behind at the Salzburg summit to have a press conference at the end, unusually. And she was hoping to use it as a platform to move on to the next stage of the negotiations and just hopefully, from her point of view, conclude the negotiations and to help her through the uh, difficult. Conservative Party conference, which starts at the end of September, instead of which the whole plan started unraveling the moment that Donald Tusk started to speak, where he basically said that the plan that she'd unveiled, the Chequers plan, wouldn't work in key respects, basically mocking her on social media and essentially saying she only had four or five weeks to engineer a breakthrough on the big outstanding issue of the Irish border question. So all of this came as a bit of a surprise. And while it's true that the things that the EU leaders, including Donald Tusk, were saying were not new, that they don't like important parts of the Chequers plan, it wasn't how it was supposed to pan out because all of the signals from Brussels to London had been this summit was supposed to be a helpful one for Theresa May, that they actually wanted Theresa May to be in a strong position politically in the UK, showed that she'd be able to deliver the compromises necessary to get a Brexit deal at the end of the process. Instead of which, Theresa May returned to Britain to headlines shouting about her humiliation in Salzburg and basically handing a huge stick to the Eurosceptics with which to beat her with at the uh, Tory conference.
1: So what do you think went wrong here? That obviously you said there was this briefing from Downing Street about this being a stepping stone, about the warm words coming from EU leaders. Something must have gone awry in the whole process.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, was, it wasn't just that people were misled over in Britain. I mean, Alex Dark and my colleague in Brussels were picking up the same thing. This was supposed to be a constructive and helpful summit for Theresa May. So it's a good question what went wrong. I think a lot of the mood music from the British side was very unhelpful before the uh, summit. For example, Michael Gove, the Environment Secretary, suggesting that Chequers was a useful starting point, but a future British Prime Minister would try and unravel the future relationship with the EU. There was a rumour knocking around on the day of the conference that Liam Fox might open the door to American food imports that are currently banned in the EU. There was a specific point that Theresa May had basically, I think this is probably the most important thing, went into the European Council saying that basically it was her checkers plan or nothing else. And that was an idea she articulated in an article in Die Welt, which she unhelpfully started reading out at the conference dinner. There was Macron, who was fed up with the fact that the EU wasn't being straight with Theresa May about the unacceptability of the Chequers' plan. And I think, finally, the relationship with Leo Varadka, the Irish Prime Minister, has never been particularly good. It went badly wrong on the morning of Thursday. Theresa May said that no deal on the Irish border would be possible before the next European Council meeting in October. Uh, Leo Varadka didn't like that and reported that straight back to the European Council. And in the end, I think there was a general view that Theresa May needs to be put back in her box.
1: So, Philip Stevens, as readers of your column will know, this is a point that we were always going to reach in the negotiation. There was always going to be some kind of standoff, and you've written consistently about the EU has put forward these two very clear options remaining in the single market and some form of customs union, the so-called Norway option, and Canada having a looser free-trading relationship. But that's going to mean some kind of border. They've been very clear from the start, these are the options. Theresa May has not particularly listened to that, has pushed ahead with checkers, and there was always going to come up when they would say, hang on, this is not going to fly.
3: Yes, I think that the British negotiating strategies so far has been to sort of push back the moment when these choices absolutely crystallized. Now, I don't know exactly what went wrong in Salzburg, and clearly something did. I got a text from someone fairly senior in in the British government, let's say, said, we always knew uh, they were going to say these things. They just weren't supposed to say them in Salzburg. But Mr. Bardier has been very clear right from the beginning. He produced a very useful table of options for for Britain. The slide, I remember that. The slide, which said, if you're prepared to do this, you can get this. And if you're prepared to do this, you can get this. And it was been very clear. And I get rather puzzled. I mean, even this afternoon in Downing Street, Mrs. May was saying they can't reject our options without explaining why. Well, they've been explaining for two years now that if you want to be in the single market for goods or for services or whatever, you have to take the whole package. So it was never going to run this idea that we could be in the single market for goods and agriculture, but outside for everything else. So I think it's unfortunate, but this was a choice that was going to crystallise. I think it's not irredeemable. But I think it was Mr Macron, my understanding, who decided, look, we can't keep playing these games. We have to, at some point, be absolutely clear. And if Mrs May won't accept our private insistence that the single market is indivisible, we have to put that publicly on the table.
1: And. Over your many years of covering and writing about these summits, they're always full of high drama and some people playing good cop and some people playing bad cop. So we've just seen the bad cop approach. One assumes at some point in the next couple of weeks we'll see the good cop emerging, trying to give more positive language. But as I said, this was always going to be expected.
3: I think so. I think there's been a, bit, a little bit of media hyperbole as well. I think when Mr Tusk tweeted out a picture of a cake and remarked that there weren't any cherries, I don't think that was a sort of vindictive act or something deliberately designed to mock Mrs May. I think it was a bit thoughtless. So I think there's been a, a little bit of, you know, humiliation headlines and perhaps been overdone. But it, Britain does face this very, very important choice about if it wants to remain close to the EU in economic terms, in trade and investment terms, and to continue to get those benefits, it has to accept the obligations. And the other point here, and this is where I think the British often forget, these other countries have politics too. These countries have European elections next year in which they will face populist parties suggesting that perhaps they too could opt out of the eu if they were to give britain they were allowed to sort of bend all the rules out of shape you know what would stop the italians saying well we'd quite like to be out of the single market for this but in it for that so i think this is a moment of truth it's a bit early it's a bit awkward but it was always unavoidable so,
1: George, that aside, it is certainly ramping up the pressure on Mrs May at home. We've seen typically Jacob Rees-Mogg has popped up this afternoon and said this is more reasons why she needs to chuck checkers and move towards the calendar option. This is where you find the sort of strange unity between Michel Barnier and the hard Brexiters, because the hard Brexiters want a very loose trading relationship, although they don't quite have any answers on how to deal with Ireland. And Michelle Barnier has taken, as Philip said, this approach of you're in the club or you're out of the club. So where does this leave the Prime Minister now?
2: Well, she's facing a difficult uh, two weeks, without a shadow of a doubt, and a very torrid Conservative Party conference. And I agree with Philip, this moment was always going to come, this moment of crisis, this darkest hour, as I think the Austrian presidency have called it. But the expectation was that would happen at the mid-October council rather than before the Tory conference. And this is why I think what happened in Salzburg has played into domestic politics, because... It's made Theresa May look weak at a time when she really needed to be strong. And that makes it harder for her to engineer the kind of compromises, as I was saying earlier, that she needs to do. She will come under pressure at the Tory conference now, as you say, from the Eurosceptics saying Chequers is dead. And therefore, follow the logic of Michel Barnier's famous stair slide that that Philip was referring to there. Canada is the only thing that's compatible with Theresa May's red lines simple Canada style trade deal. The problem with it, of course, is there's an economic problem, which it creates friction at the border, disrupts just in time supply chains and all the rest of it. And of course it doesn't solve the issue of a borderless frontier in Northern Ireland Northern Ireland and the Republic. Those are the two problems with it. The other thing I think is the political problem of moving to a Canada style solution, which is that now that Theresa May set out a checkers plan, which is essentially a softer vision of Brexit, If she now decides, right, well, that didn't work, the next best option is to go down the route advocated by Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg, then suddenly you open up an entirely new can of worms because Parliament, I suspect, will not vote for a version of Brexit which is more tilted towards Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson and away from the approach that Theresa May has already articulated. So we haven't heard very much from the pro-European conservatives recently, for good reason. They think the argument's been going in their direction. But you'll certainly hear a lot more from them if Theresa May starts tacking towards Rees Mogg and Boris Johnson.
3: Well, yes, I think this is the balancing act that she's been trying to um, pull off. And we've all focused, I think, on the Eurosceptics. But there are there is a perhaps rather smaller band of very committed pro-Europeans in the Conservative Party who have their own red line. Now... I'm not sure where that red line is precisely. I think if this is now redeemable, it's redeemable only if they can find an agreement on Ireland and they can agree a political statement about the future relationship, which includes quite a lot about checkers, except the single market stuff. And enough to persuade the pro-Europeans that it it will be more than a bare-bones Canada-style trade agreement. This
1: comes to the point now, George, which is that all the talk in recent weeks has all been about the withdrawal agreement. And that's where the talks are hinged on. Can they come to a conclusion on the Irish border? Because the future relationship, which is this is Czechos, Canada or Norway, that's all going to be kicked into after March 2019. Once we've left, nobody's seriously talking about those... In the negotiations now, and there's been this development of a concept which our colleague James Blitz and others have written about, which is a blind Brexit, which essentially we hand over the money, we agree the transition, but we have very little specifics on what comes on the other side. The advantage of that is that you can sort of fudge it enough to get it through the House of Commons. So really, you can see a way how Theresa May drops the language of checkers, doesn't necessarily start tacking towards Canada, but just focuses very much on the withdrawal part of it now. And that might just about help her get something through her MPs.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. I think that was one of the things that surprised me most about Donald Tusk's language in Salzburg, because... I thought, you know, the EU would try to fudge the future relationship paper and would dress it up in language of seeking the most ambitious ever agreement with a third country and a deep and special economic partnership. And they could say that elements of checkers could be explored and, you know, all sorts of aspirational language, which would fudge things enough to get it over the line. Well, the fact that Donald Tusk has explicitly said it will not work actually makes that a little bit harder. But I think, you know, if you were to, if you asked me to put some money on it, I still think there will be a deal in Brussels by mid-November. For this reason, uh, Philip has covered many of these negotiations as well. You have to look at where the interest lies. Strip away all the negotiating flim-flam and the rhetoric. Where do the interests lie? The UK wants a deal. The European Union wants a deal. The Irish Republic definitely needs a deal. And therefore, one imagines that it's not beyond the wish of man to come up with a deal that solves the issue of the Northern Ireland border. I think it's very unlikely, given the enormously high economic and geopolitical stakes at play here, the question of the Northern Ireland frontier will scotch the whole thing. Now, I could be wrong, and people in these negotiations miscalculate and they don't understand each other's politics extremely well, but I think in the end, there will be a deal in mid-November, and as you say, some sort of fudging of the future relationship, just enough to get enough people in the division lobbies in the House of Commons to get this over the line.
3: I think that is the probability, although I'm perhaps not quite as confident as George that it will happen. The problem with it is that it will solve nothing and simply create another cliff edge 20 months after March 2019. Because if we have a fudged blind Brexit then we're going to have to go through this again and we know that 20 months the so-called transition period isn't going to be enough so if you're working in business or finance or trying to plan your career you face another period up to the end of 2020 when everything is uncertain so I would just put one more thing into the mix which is the possibility that at some point everyone coalesces around the idea of us staying in the European economic area, the so-called Norway option, for perhaps, say, a five-year limited period.
1: That's something that Michael Gove and some people have been talking about simply because we are already aligned to where the EA is at now. So you can see the route that would go down to take us there. But as Mrs May said at Downing Street today, it does create some very big political problems in terms of borders, laws and money, which were the tenants of the referendum.
3: We've got huge political and economic problems whatever happens in the next six months a year or so brexit was a bad decision and we are going to face the consequences of it so there is no easy way out of this
1: And finally, George, the last thing is to come back to your thing about the probability of there being a deal. When you watch the rhetoric of Salzburg yesterday and the EU leaders speaking in the rhetoric of Mrs May inside Downing Street, I should say, where she was, you know, the British bulldog was on full display for everyone to see with rousing rhetoric, you can see how both sides continue to misread each other on this. That Mrs May has said very clearly she will not accept a backstop, which I think was already agreed in the joint agreement last December, but she says she will now not accept if it ends up splitting up the UK. On the EU side, they've got their rules, their club as well. So you can see that if nobody really moves or if no one really budges, there is a risk of, people have put it, sleepwalking towards a no deal.
2: Yes, I think that's certainly true. Um, The one caveat I'll put on that though is that if we do look like we're sleepwalking towards the the cliff, what will Parliament do? I don't think Parliament will stand idly by while Britain inflicts serious economic self-harm. And I think Parliament will stop that happening. I I still think a no-deal outcome is the least likely outcome simply because a vast majority of MPs in the House of Commons won't allow it to happen. And then you get into all sorts of interesting discussions about the different scenarios which we've discussed on this podcast on many occasions before about new elections, second referendums, or, as Philip just mentioned, the idea of parking us in the Norway-style EEA arrangement for a temporary period. But as they say in Brussels, there's nothing as permanent as the temporary.
1: Labour conference is kicking off this weekend in Liverpool, and it's set again to be an interesting one. Jeremy Corbyn's control over the party is now complete, so there are only two real questions to be answered. Will the party vote to hand more powers over to the membership about selecting or deselecting its MPs? And will the trade unions and other parts of its membership force Labour to endorse a second referendum on the EU membership? Robert Shimsey, the last few Labour conferences since Jeremy Corbyn became leader were all about challenges from the moderates. What are the moderates going to do? Are they going to break away? Are they going to speak up? None of those questions really stand this year because over the last year, the NEC has now fallen entirely into Jeremy Corbyn's hands. There's no real prospect of people like Liz Kendall, Chukramana, the people who used to be the centre of Labour Party regaining power. So this, once again, is going to be Mr Corbyn's conference.
4: Yes and no. It's worth remembering, of course, that the issue around the moderates is no longer whether they can reclaim power within the Labour Party, but whether they stay in the Labour Party. And it was exactly these kind of internal reforms that drove out David Owen and Shirley Williams from the Labour Party when they went to form the SDP. So I think they're still there in the mix for this story. And the reason we know they're in the mix for this story is because the leadership is trying to work out how to balance these reforms in a way that don't lead immediately to the kind of mass deselection that would be the spur, quite probably, for a split in the party. And what's been very obvious in the last couple of weeks is the divergence between the leadership, Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, and... The momentum supporters over this issue because they want full democracy and as many rights as possible to get rid of MPs, to choose the leader, and so on. And the leadership, now safely ensconced, is beginning to see the merits of centralisation now that they've got all the power in their own hands. So I think the internal reform debate could be a little bit more interesting. And Jeremy Corbyn, because he is secure, could actually
1: get some setbacks on that issue in particular. Miranda Green, this all comes to the fact that there are a lot of Labour MPs who still don't really accept Mr Corbyn's leadership, that some of them have come around to it, some serve under him, but an awful lot of the parliamentary Labour Party still don't particularly want him as Prime Minister or as leader of the Labour Party, and the leadership does know that. So the question is really what happens about that? Do those MPs sort of sit on their hands, wait and hope to be a moderating force for Labour government, or will, as Robert said, this so-called democracy review, is that going to somehow unseat them?
5: Well, what they've decided to do, most of them, is actually, for example, not even to go to the Labour conference this year. And in our colleague Jim Pickard's big report on the Labour factional splits, he has sitting MPs saying, well, last time I went to my own party's conference, I was spat at. Why should I even turn up? So in a sense, the conversation over the next few days, as Robert said, will be partly about them, but their voices will be absent. And one voice that will be raised, though, in this whole debate about whether they should face automatic deselection is the voice of the powerful union backers of the Labour Party, because you've mentioned the fact that Momentum, the grassroots organisation, wants to be able to select their own candidates to stand as MPs. But of course, the union backers of the Labour Party have always had a very, very strong role in fixing the selections and getting their people in place. So again, we might be back to the quite fun drama that we had a couple of years ago of that was dubbed Alien versus Predator, the big powerful unions versus the grassroots new membership. I think that the other thing is just to flag up that as well as the internal party democracy row, which matters hugely, there's the even more important row over whether the Labour Party should be manoeuvred into backing a second referendum on Brexit. And there again, you will see the role of momentum in trying to force the leadership's hand and how far they can manage to do that, becoming really crucial potentially to the history of the UK and its relationship with its allies. You know, you can get really bogged down in this internal party <laughs> democracy stuff. But actually, whether Corbyn, a lifelong Eurosceptic, can be persuaded to back calls for a second referendum on Brexit is absolutely crucial.
1: This is really the interesting thing, Robert, as Miranda is saying, because the momentum for a people's vote is growing, but there's still not a decisive change yet. You know, there's no majority or sign of it in Parliament. And really, until the Labour Party endorsed that position, it's hard to see how it moves from anything of being unrequited Remainers who just want to stop Brexit from happening into a real sea change in public opinion. You've got this divide between the vast majority of momentum who are younger, more pro-EU members, vast parts of the parliamentary Labour Party who are pro-EU, while you've Got the leadership who are in some parts very Eurosceptic, but are also very reluctant to be seen to be going against the will of the people from the 2016 referendum. So how do you see this playing out? I think there's a couple of other components to this. Most of the unions are now supportive of a One second by referendum. one, they've now they come around behind. to the side
4: as well. So many of the poles of power in the Labour Party are moving behind this. I think that actually the Labour leadership's position is less about a fear of defying the public, and more that they think they're playing to bring down the government. And at the moment, they don't want to be distracted from bringing down the government. So they want to see chaos on the Tory side, a deal rejected, because they think that will lead to an election. My own instinct is that a deal being rejected is exactly the moment when the second referendum moves into reality as a real possibility as something that could happen, which is one of the things that Theresa May is using quietly to try and hold back her own hardliners by saying to them, actually, you know what? If you vote me down, we're into second referendum territory. You fancy that? So I think it's really an interesting balancing act for Labour. But I don't think that Jeremy Corbyn has actually, from a crude tactical point of view, forget about the rights and wrongs and morality issues. I think he's played this reasonably well so far, but he is coming to a crunch point. And the other thing to point out is also that the Labour moderates, who are essentially almost all Remainers... One of the reasons why they're sitting tough, why they don't want to talk about splits or leaving the party at the moment is because they want the leverage on the Labour Party on this issue. I think whatever happens at the Labour Party conference, they are likely to hang tough until after Brexit because they still think there's a chance of forcing the pace on this. How it's going to go at the Labour conference, I don't know. It's certainly been quite common for Labour conference arrangements committees to mangle motions and pick the one that gives them the most leeway. So instead of one that binds them to supporting a second referendum, they could select one for debate that sort of gives them a nudge in that direction, but
1: doesn't quite force them to do something. Everything until now, Miranda, has been about constructive ambiguity, is what they called their stance during last year's general election, because essentially Jeremy Corbyn isn't interested in Brexit. He just wants to get it over and focus on the things he really cares about, which is domestic reform and challenging the Thatcherite settlement, nationalisation, all that sort of thing. And, and the th- Middle East. And the Middle East as well, which he obviously loves talk about. thing he really about. cares about, yeah. What's going to be interesting to see at this conference is how those tensions play out. Because as Robert said, this is coming to a crunch point And we've Emily Thornberry told the FT last week that Labour will vote against any kind of Brexit deal the Tories bring back saying it's a Tories Brexit will not meet these magical six tests they've created as if they were ever going to be met but I'm sure Mr Corbyn will try and move away from this and there may be some much bigger domestic announcements they want to focus on but will anyone be listening?
5: Well I think Robert is absolutely right what the Labour leadership want is to bring on a general election which they think they would have a chance of winning and so they don't want to get as they see it distracted via a second referendum on Brexit. Lots of the chat will be about that, but as you say, they'll want to also return people's attention to their domestic agenda, which, as we know from the 2017 election, as laid out in the Labour manifesto, was really pretty popular. With the public, and actually, I think when you look at where they're going and what they want this conference to be a stepping stone towards, you have to notice what John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, has been up to over the last few months. I mean, even this week, he's had this very successful interview with Mumsnet, the online forum, which is a bunch of middle-class, chattering-class voters who he seemed to utterly charm. You know, so John McDonnell's sort of mission to make the Labour Party electable beyond the core left-wing vote, seems to be going quite well. Can they build on that? And that also then takes you to the problem that they might feel that they have if there is another general election later rather than sooner, which is, does Corbyn continue to be a massive asset if you're trying to win the keys to number 10? Because what John McDonnell's trying to do with this sort of economic agenda is clearly about winning an election Is that what Jeremy Corbyn is up to? I think that's becoming quite a fundamental question. Yeah,
4: I think this is absolutely right. But I think I see quite a lot of people saying, you know, Labour should be much further ahead in the opinion polls and Labour's not talking enough about the economy. And I agree with both those points, especially if you think that we're in a crisis parliament where an election could come at any time. But if you step back and say, well, let's just suppose that this government does last something approaching a full term. We're in the first year since an election. This is the year when you get the domestic rubbish out of the way, when you have your internal party reforms. It's also because of Brexit, a year when almost nothing else can be heard in politics. There is such an enormous central issue that even the things that John Macdonald is saying, which are interesting and important, are going to be drowned out a little bit by Brexit and by the second referendum. But it's okay because he can keep saying them. And I think in setting out the strong economic agenda that he has... It is possible to establish the building blocks for what Labour will be about as and when an election comes. It's really important. But I do think even with a strong day's coverage, which he'll probably get when he makes his speech, this is all about Brexit. You know, the internal reforms are interesting to a small number of people and they have consequences. But the second referendum vote is the big story of this conference. Labour participation on Brexit is the one that really matters for the next 12 months. And that's the one that will rightly get most attention.
5: And I think also it's interesting from the point of view of whether they can solve this problem they've now got, which is, according to a recent quite interesting set of focus groups by Britain Thinks, that traditional Labour Party voters think they've gone from a casserole party to a quinoa party but, you know, it's this question of can you move your position on a Brexit referendum without further alienating those traditional blue-collar Labour voters whilst keeping the younger, more left-wing ones on side?
1: I think the other thing, finally, that's going to be interesting to look at, Robert, is who are the key figures who cut through and make news from this conference? Because that's often a measure of who's up, who's down, and who's doing well. As you said, Mr Corbyn's speech on the Wednesday will no doubt be the main event. As I said, John McDonnell as well, if he has any more bold economic announcements to make. There's lots of rumours going around that there will be something, again, decisive. Last year, it was all about focusing on the nationalisation agenda. But I think you can see a sense where you hear more from that next younger generation who came into Parliament last year, who are often touted by Corbynites as the future people like Dan Carden, who's the MP for Liverpool Waverley, Laura Pidcock, who's an MP for Durham. These people are seen as the next generation of socialist leadership, as John McDonnell likes to call them. And you can see those people really break through, who are the interesting ones that you'll be watching out for?
4: Well, I slightly disagree with you, Seb. I think that when we talk about breaking through, you're probably only talking about breaking through with journalists. I mean, right. There's clearly absolutely no way that any of them are going to gain any attention from, from the, the general public unless do something course. extraordinary. Interesting I think, figures, I say. And I say. think that actually, it's very hard for anybody other than Corbyn and McDonald to break through into the public consciousness at all out of this conference but if I was looking at people I would be looking a little bit nearer to the top at people like Rebecca Long-Bailey and Angela Rayner people are in the shadow cabinet already and who are actually not at all well known by the public I know you talk about the future generations as identified by the socialist part of the party but I think for members ordinary members a lot of them will be looking at those people who are near the top already. John McDonald has is quite patently pushing Rebecca Long-Bailey for the succession in the future. Angela Rayner's looked very impressive. Emily um, Thornberry's em, pushing herself. Well, Emily Thornberry's already sort of there and thereabouts, but I think I would be focused a lot more on those people because I think you want to see if any of them can rise to the kind of national status that currently only really Corbyn, McDonald and maybe Diane Abbott have.
5: I think Angela Rayner is extremely impressive and uh, you know, education's my area. She's got this sort of impeccable, very interesting, compelling backstory. And she doesn't have any of that kind of quinoa is LinkedIn taint. And she's never said anything controversial and Corbynite on, for example, you know, anti-Semitism. And she is definitely one to watch, I would say. She resonates greatly.
1: Well, we'll be back next week and we'll look at how that conference went. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining us. In the meantime, if you enjoyed FT Politics and would like to find out more from the FT, then do take a look at our latest subscription offer, which you can find at ft.com for us off of 50. FT Politics presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening.